0: Larry Levy appreciate you joining me today um I know you have been extremely busy these days and I think you're running on a few hours of sleep so uh (laughs) I I thank you for being here I just want to go over Uh, Executive Dean of the National Center of Suburban Studies at Hofstra University, but, you know, 35 years as a reporter, Pulitzer finalist, um, senior editorial writer and chief political columnist for Newsday, co-host of the PBS show Face Off. You're probably going to be the easiest person I ever interview. You are in front (laughs) of the camera all the time.
1: You, You didn't mention my baseball career, Devin. (laughs) Oh,
0: baseball. I like it. I like it. So um, I'm going to just get right to politics because, you know, we just had the election. Votes are still being counted. Uh, Where do you see this thing going? Is it over?
1: Well, if you're talking about the presidency, uh, it's pretty unlikely that uh, uh, Joe Biden will not be the president. Uh, As we speak, uh, the Mail-in ballots, which are running heavily Democratic uh, are whittling away at uh, President Trump's lead in Pennsylvania. Uh, Biden's lead in Arizona seems to be expanding, excuse me, in in Nevada, uh, seems to be expanding. In Arizona, it's kind of wobbly, but uh, it looks pretty clear that Biden's going to be the next president of the United States. By the same token, it also looks pretty clear, even though it's not final, that the Republicans will hold on to control of Congress. So what we're looking at is divided government. And while that may frustrate a lot of people, uh, it's certainly been frustrating the last uh, uh, few years, uh, it's sort of reflective of where the country is. Uh, Even if Biden wins Pennsylvania and uh, Georgia where he's closing in, he will have uh, a, a narrow electoral college majority one of the largest popular majorities. The country is still pretty divided, and um, they're going to have to find a way to work together, uh, if not for the good of the country, for the good of their their own parties, because if nothing is done to change a lot of things that people care about, they're going to rebel against one side or the other in the next election. If the Republicans, Mitch McConnell's people, are perceived as the obstacle to what Biden and the Democrats want to do, and if that's still in sync with what the public wants, they'll take it out on the Republicans in the 2022 elections. By the same token, if the Democrats run too far to the left and they try to go hog wild on things like the New Green Deal and some other uh, progressive proposals, uh, the uh, House, Democratic House members may have their hands full in 2022 And you may have a Republican president in 2024. So I think what
0: what really scares me is the division in our country. It's really just ingrained in in people's minds right now. And no matter what somebody is told, there's always going to be other people that are thinking the opposite. And no matter who ends up pulling away in the presidential election, um, I, I think regardless we were going to have such a, a an even more of a, of a divided country and it's it's painful to watch I think a lot of it has to do with um, the information that's going out on, on both sides um, but is, is it possible is it even possible to, to bring this country together is that is that one person's doing is that is that? you know the governments doing is that the actual people doing it how how do we get back to
1: to to just all being americans well in part it's going to take leadership around some common challenge and right now uh or very soon we will almost certainly have a new president uh who uh will have received well over 50 percent of the vote um he's perceived as relatively moderate, uh, particularly compared to mem- some many members of his own party. There is a challenge out there. It's COVID-19, uh, once the dust settles on the election people are gonna remember that we're infecting 100,000 people a day and deaths are running above a thousand a day. That's two 747s fully loaded crashing every day. Can you imagine the headlines would dominate the news for years and years. And yet we're almost shrugging it off. But I think that you've got the challenge and and you have the economic challenge. So there is a chance for maybe not everybody. I mean, I I think we're probably at the point where 25% of the people on one side and 25% of the people on the other side are irretrievably lost. And and maybe they were always lost, but Devin, you mentioned the idea of the information coming out. And I assume you're you're talking about social media and, and, and other uh, online instantaneous speed of light communications. Absolutely. Uh, I think that these people were always there on the far left, far right, but they now have a platform and they have a megaphone and it can get amplified uh, instantaneously. Um, so that will be a challenge for leaders that are at least relatively in the middle, You know, the other 25% of their side, the 25% nearest the middle to find a way to come together. And this is a great opportunity that is also an essential opportunity, COVID and the economy. And I think that there are enough people in this country on both sides who want to stop getting sick and dying and want to be able to open safely, regardless of how ideologically they feel about masks and partying. Most people know in their heart, they're probably putting themselves at risk, but it's something, it's a risk they're willing to take. But I don't think anybody wants to have to think about that. So I think that's how we unite the country around a new leader who knows how to talk to conservatives. He knows how to talk to liberals, but he is fundamentally a suburban moderate. You know, Long Islanders could be, and places like Long Island around the country could be the way to give a hint on the way forward. You know, there are plenty of deep red conservatives on Long Island and bright blue uh, 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 Democrats and progressives. But there's a preponderance on Long Island and a lot of other suburban areas around the country of moderates. And the way that suburban communities on Long Island tend to work together, Republican and Democrat, is a, a potential roadmap to the future. I mean, during the COVID crisis, every week, all the town supervisors, uh, you have to count them for me, 13, 14, (laughs) I I sometimes forget Shelter Island. Republican and Democrat, they would get on the phone together and share information and share strategies, share ideas, and if they took an idea from one town, they'd say, you know, Supervisor Angie Carpenter from from, uh, Islip, uh, uh, you know, is doing this, and I think we should try that in our town. And it's a Democratic supervisor saying this. Don Clavin in Hempstead seems to be working pretty well with Laura, uh, Laura Curran in Nassau County, a Democrat, uh, and with Judy Bosworth, a Democrat in North Hempstead. So uh, Ed Romaine is about as green a Republican, and really as green a local official, as you could find. So Because they realize that even though they have their bases you can't get elected in most suburban communities by only appealing to your base. You've got to get something of the other side. You've got to get people in the middle. So, the way of Peter King, who in some respects for, for Long Island was relatively conservative, but for Washington, they called him a Republican in name only, the national guys. And uh, the national Republicans would joke about it, you know, about how they were considered liberals you know, by the Newt Gingrich crowd and uh, some of the tax, the Tea Party people. So um, I think there's a way forward uh, in our communities and, the, and um, considering that the suburbs are the swing vote in this country and whoever has been elected president for more than a generation has had to get the majority of suburban voters around the country. Um, Donald Trump won the suburbs by four points in 2016, looks like he's gonna lose it by three or four points in 2020.
0: It's interesting. The moderates
1: had their way. They had their say and they had their way. As they'll lead to my CNN column.
0: You definitely, you definitely um, see on the local government side, definitely a more moderate outlook. And and um, on, on the federal side, there you do have the far extremes, and I only hope that people can start to work across the aisle and, and listen across the aisle for the better
1: and of the people. Right, I mean, Hempstead Town's a great example, largest town in America, bigger than Cincinnati and, 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 and a lot of cities that we remember as the great metrop- metropolises of, of this country. Uh, four years ago, a, a Democrat won uh, the town supervisorship, Laura Gillen, Uh, by a couple of thousand votes in a a, a town of 750,000. Two years later, Don Clavin, a Republican, won it back by a couple of thousand. Don Clavin has got to make sure that a lot of those moderate voters are gonna be with him next time or he's gonna be the ex-supervisor. And you do that not by pressing hot buttons, but you do it by pursuing practical policies when it comes to development, taxation, the environment. So for instance, where Republicans in years past saw density as equaling Democrats, and it may be a fact that denser communities tend to vote Democratic for all kinds of reasons that take too long to go into. Rich or poor, um, Don Clavin understands that there are certain downtown areas where you have opportunities to build affordable or market rate housing near train stations, to attract millennials, to attract baby boomers. I'm living in an apartment, 12-minute walk from Rockville Center train station. I love it. I don't need the big single-family home. I of an age where I don't want to climb a lot of stairs. <laughs> and... Um, and I'm going to get older and I'm going to want to climb even less stairs. And um, so, but there are opportunities there and and, and Clavin understands that you have to do that. And, And while Republicans still tend to run on a lower tax policy, he realizes that there are public services that he's got to invest in and that you cannot cut your way to a successful community. You can destroy a community maybe by spending and taxing too much, but you can't cut your way the opposite way to prosperity. So again, you know, leaders like that who might be mocked by their fellow Republicans in Washington or Wyoming or Alabama, understand that that's how you bring a community together. That's how you manage to survive in a township where Democrats outnumber Republicans by a lot. So I
0: think one of the fears of the, the Republicans were in a lot of these Democratic-run cities, um, we had peaceful protests that turned into uh, violent protests at night. And there were calls to defund the police. And, and um, I think law, law and order is very important. I think you believe that law and order is very important. I don't think
1: and I think 90 percent of the Democrats will believe it too. Um, I, you know, I, I think you're on to a very important point, Devin. Um, the the image of violence in the streets uh, coming from the left, coming from some Democrats, or or some people who are certainly anti-republican, uh, anti-conservative, um, had a powerful impact and probably helped the Republicans hold on to the Senate. It certainly on Long Island, helped the Republicans take back possibly three Senate, state Senate seats. So, um, but the reality is that it was a, that most, the vast majority of the protests were peaceful. I was stunned in the early days of uh, getting out there on Long Island to see for myself, all the white middle-class people, especially women who are joining with the Black protesters after the killing of George Floyd. Uh, And I also was stunned about the polling that showed such a high percentage of support in the suburbs for the Black Lives Matter movement. But these same people would also say that Blue Lives Matter. They would say, we love our police. We spend a ton of money supporting our police department. And I think that gets back to what you said even farther back which is that the actions of the minority, whether it's um, being, you know, using a word, I probably shouldn't use, wackos on the right or wackos on the left, are magnified and almost hijack the public square. When most people, even police officers, would like to see some semblance of reform. You could debate the details of it. They want to get bad apples out of their departments. They don't want to place social workers. They don't mind having, you know, a, a social worker or a psychologist to, to consult with uh, when they're dealing with people who clearly are have lost their minds. Um, and 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 you know, an expression like "defund the police" that came from the extreme left that I still can't figure out what it is. Uh, uh, you know. Um, You know, but it's taken over, it's taken over the debate. And I think that, and I'm hoping, and and it gets back to where we started, I'm I'm hoping that when things settle down again, and we all start focusing on the real threat, which is COVID and, and, and the economy, that we will realize that we have a lot in common and that if we don't work together, we're never going to deal with the problems or get anything done, moving beyond them. I also believe in the tooth fairy, Devin.
0: <laughs>
1: I, you know what? I, it's it's.
0: I don't know how we're ever going to be able to look past you know, black on white crimes, white on black crimes. I think there's almost none.
1: There is virtually no black on white crime. And the only white on black crime is white collar. And I would argue that black people have suffered more from white collar crime perpetrated by white professionals. But it become
0: crime on crime? How, how, how do we get to that, well, you're just you're,
1: crime on crime? You're a little younger than me. In the 70s and 80s, this region and others in the country went through a spasm of drug-fueled violence. The crack wars spilled out into the streets. It's hard to imagine this, but during the late 70s and 80s, New York City was averaging 20, over 2,000 murders a year. That's, that's you know eight, eight a day. And while Long Island was always relatively much, much safer, the level of crime was still higher than we were used to. Now, and even with the spasm of violence that we're seeing this past year, which nobody's quite figured out yet, we don't even get anywhere near 1,000 1, murders in a city of 9 million people. We have the lowest violent crime rate of any major city in the country by far. Are you a believer that the media
0: is focusing on crimes where there's... Yes. Yes. I think
1: television, television news, they joke about it. Uh, If it bleeds, it leads. But it's true. A great, quote unquote, I'm saying great, you know, from a a TV production standpoint, a big murder, even if it has, you know, and every life is valuable, but you know, to lead a broadcast when outside the impact on a family, which is profound, but nonetheless, has little to do with the lives of anybody else. It's not a story to show an example of a crime wave that needs to be dealt with on a high policy level. That, that murder, especially if there's footage of blood on the street, is going is to lead, lead broadcasts in a sophisticated, in sophisticated media markets all over the country. And, you know, uh, at journalism meetings, we talk about this all the time, about how we've we got to get away from that. And people say, yeah, we want to get away from it. And then your opponent, your, your competitor, you know, you try to do it and your competitor leads with the, the car accident and everybody switches off to go there because they're looking for the car accident. So it's, it's a problem. And, and I think what, what I, if, if, if you boil down what I'm saying, it's that it's not just the media's fault, it's the consumer's fault too. Consumers have a responsibility to demand higher quality, more objective, more truthful coverage of news. I I mean, one of the real problems of of us coming together again? I'm sorry? I think the consumer would love that. I don't know if the consumer- I don't know that that's true, Devin. I I think that we've, we've, we've sorted ourselves into tribes I'm sorry, we were talking over each other. I don't know if the consumer knows how to demand it. That's a problem. And, and I think that starting in middle school, we have to start teaching news literacy. How do you separate something that's obviously propaganda and opinion from something that is factual or that somebody with a, with a professional skills made an effort to get right and to represent a, another view if it's that sort of story I was raised that way. I spent four years in journalism school. And the idea of expressing my opinion made my skin crawl. I even remember back in uh, 1987, when I was a a hotshot young reporter and I was doing investigative work, Uh, everything was objective, anything was quotes, my opinion, I, I kept it out as best as I can. And if I somehow let it slip in, I had three levels of editors who would expunge it and whack me around the newsroom for letting it get in when they asked me to become an editorial writer, my skin crawled at first. I said, you you want me to write opinion? I said, first of all, who cares about my opinion? And I said, and frankly, we shouldn't even have an editorial page. We shouldn't be expressing our opinion. But I came around to the idea that we did provide a forum and that we had a wall between opinion and fact. The editorial page was confined confined to left-hand side of the you know, deep in the bowels of of what was the paper's opinion. That is the management's opinion, not the reporter's. And then there were the columnists who were part of that. But if a newspaper reporter wrote a story that I thought would make an interesting editorial, uh, something I thought we ought to express an opinion on, I could not talk to that reporter. We had a protocol. I would have to go to my boss and I said, I want to go speak to Joe Smith. There were a couple of things I didn't quite get or I wanna make sure you know it, it, it hasn't changed. My boss would then go over the wall and talk to the boss of the newsroom and ask if we could talk and only talk about facts in the story. And more often than not, I would get a memo back so I didn't pollute. And, and, uh, and it's still actually a Newsday, it still goes on. New York Times, it still goes on. Wall Street Journal, which is you know, con- the conservative opposite of the New York Times, it still goes on. The reporters at the Wall Street Journal are terrific. The report, you know, even though it's a conservative paper, the reporters at the Times are terrific even though its editorial page is liberal. Uh, Newsdays is a little bit of a mix, um, but more and more often on television, you can't tell the difference. Like for example, um, uh, the, I, I think the reporters at Fox News are terrific. Um, in fact, uh, I watch their coverage of things because they're professionals and they're trying to get it right. And yeah, they have an audience that's conservative and wants confirmation of its, of its views, validation of its, of its views. Um, they try to do a good job. But you know, by, by six o'clock, you know, Judge uh, uh, Perini comes on and then it's Tucker Carlson and Hannity. And the same way on MSNBC, you get the opinion people and I don't have a lot of use for that. I want the facts. You know, the old uh, dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Uh, we've lost that. I don't know how to get that back, uh, but it's gonna take a lot of education and it's gonna, gonna take at least a little open mindedness and, and sophistication on the part of the viewers. So, my,
0: my opinion on um, the police. You know, I believe that they actually need more funding. I believe that there, there's more training that needs to be done. Um, I believe that also our school teachers should be paid more and that um, school is a very safe and probably the most important place aside from the home that a kid's gonna be in most of their time. And they're gonna become the person, the adult they become from their peers, from their teachers, um, and that teachers
1: are vastly underpaid. Well, I, 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 uh, I hear you, uh, I agree with you. Um, the good news is that we have the highest paid police and teachers in the world. And as long as they're working hard and doing their job well and right, more power to them. It's one of the reasons why we have with, with unfortunate exceptions in, in mostly in non-white areas, where we have probably the best public school system, uh, one of the best public school systems in the country on Long Island. Um, that said, there's a question of how much can we afford? Are there ways of doing it less expensively? Uh, are, is there a way of uh, doing it less expensively and ending this awful segregation we have that's not good for whites or non-whites? Um, I think that, that, that merging, maybe not every school district, but many of them, so we're not paying 124 people over 300,000 a year to be supervisors, so that we don't pack all the minority kids into a handful of schools. Um, uh, uh, we did a study, Devin, uh, it's probably one of the best things we've done in a long time, it certainly got the most attention. Uh, we did a study of minority teacher hiring on Long Island. And there have been studies before, but we went down to the building level and we found that 61% of the school buildings on Long Island do not have a single black teacher. Not one, the, that 48% of the buildings on Long Island don't have a single Latino teachers, not one, and that 30 some odd percent don't have an Asian teacher. So if this were Alabama or Mississippi, I'd say, well, it's the vestiges of the Jim Crow South, but this is Long Island. And um, what this means is that a lot of minority kids don't ever have the benefit of being taught, having a role model who looks like them. And hundreds of thousands of white kids never get to experience what it's like to to deal with people who are different than them, people of color, and it's gonna hurt them when they get out into the real world where you have to do that. So these are the kind of things we need to do something about. Um, One of the reasons that we're unable to make a difference is that we're very segregated and uh, they're independently elected boards. They make their own policies. The state doesn't crack down on it. So yeah, uh, let's try to save money. Let's try to educate our kids better. Uh, let's let have the safest streets in the world. Um, and you can't do that by skimping on what you pay people. Uh, but you also can't do it by, well, by um, not making sure you're getting a bang for your buck. Understood. Understood. Now, we don't have
0: much time left. So I do want to uh, talk about the Hofstra celebration of suburban diversity. I know you have have one coming up. Uh, Tell me a little
1: bit about it. It's a great event. And I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but 12 years ago, we had an international conference on suburban change. Uh, All over the world, suburbs were changing in various ways, racially, ethnically, economically. Uh, uh, real estate-wise, business-wise, it's just all over the place. And we needed to do a dinner. So uh, we decided, why don't we bring the professors from all over the world together with people from the community? So we said, let's call it a celebration of suburban diversity. So it had a community benefit, but it also became a fundraiser as well, which, of course, you know, is always the punchline on these things. And uh, but, you know, unlike other organizations that have suddenly been woke by the unfortunate killing of George Floyd and the disparate impact of the pandemic on communities of color. We've been around a long time. Uh, We've been very lucky. We've had uh, some great keynote speakers. Charles Wong was the keynote speaker at the first one. He was the uh, founder of Computer Associates, owner of of, uh, the Islanders. Uh, Mike Dowling of Northwell, uh, Bob Cattell of National Grid USA. Uh, A a lot of really terrific people and a good mix too. John Durso of Labor, uh, Gene Kelly of the Interfaith Nutrition Network, really, really fine people. And uh, this year, we weren't sure we were going to do it. But I, I just decided, you know, we've got this great platform. We bring five, 600 people together, usually at Crest Hollow, uh, a, a great spirit, good fundraising for diversity-related research and scholarships and, and community engagement. And we decided, let's do it virtually. So right now, I'm in the process of taping 20 different people and trying to figure out a way of sliding them in without putting the people to sleep for an hour. And uh, uh, but we're going to be out there and hopefully uh, some people listening will get get some uh, get their invitation. If not, uh, you could reach out. Uh, um, it's a great event to support. Um, and it's a, it, hopefully it'll be a great event to actually tune in on December 9th, at seven o'clock.
0: And if they want to donate, where would they go? Well,
1: they go to www.hofstra.edu slash NCSS. The NCSS is National Center for Suburban Studies. So that's www.hofstra.edu slash NCSS. And they should be able to find their way to a, a, a donation tab.
0: I'm looking forward to it. I really appreciate you coming on today. I know you fit us in your busy, busy schedule. Oh, I, I, you're great, are great.
1: Well, thank you, thank you for having me. Uh, let's do it again when uh, at some point. Um, and I appreciate you going through the time and effort to do these sorts of things. You know, it's really, really important uh, millennials start to step up and, and take their places in, in leadership. I know uh, I've known your dad, uh, Jack, a, a long, long time. And, you know, I'm, I'm not that much uh, younger than him. And, uh, you know, it's time for the new generation to take over. And this is one of the ways that you do it, which is to bring on people to learn and for us to learn from you. Absolutely. Thank you.